Well, it's a great uh, joy to be back with you. Um, a disclosure as we begin. Uh, I've got ten weeks of not preaching bound up in me, and and uh, it's going to come spilling out. And um, uh, we'll try and keep the time to a reasonable time. But I just have so much I would want to share with you today. Some reflections on our Sabbath is what I'd like to do before we begin our new series on what's your one step uh, next week. Uh, greetings from Sherry. Uh, she's in San Diego. Yesterday was her parents' 65th wedding anniversary, which is pretty awesome, 65 years. And so she's there with her family, and then she'll join the gals from our church at Triennial uh, this coming Thursday. She'll be back next uh, Sunday. So she sends her greetings. She misses you all terribly and can't wait to be back with you. Ten weeks, 5,800 miles in my van, eight states, including Canada, which isn't a state, but that's all right. They should be. Uh, uh, Alaska, all kinds of experiences and beautiful things and lovely people and all kinds of exciting things that were just remarkable. And I just want to thank you um, as my church family, first of all, the elders for um, granting me um, a sabbatical months ago. They granted me seven weeks of uh, sabbatical and then I added three weeks vacation to that uh, for the financial support you gave us for that. I want to especially thank uh, our staff uh, led by Brandon, who did an extraordinary job um, in my absence. Uh, there's nothing better than to come back and have the church in a better place than when you left it. Uh, that, that's a, a remarkable thing. It doesn't happen often. And uh, I'm just really, really grateful uh, to Brandon and the whole team. And along with that, I, I received an email this morning uh, from uh, a fairly new member of our church. Uh, they've been with us maybe for about a year. And um, she reflected uh, in this email uh, some important things that I wanted to share with you. And so it was mostly a great personal greeting and and uh, and welcoming us back and like that. And then she talks about about our staff. Here's what she says. First of all, those pastors and elders did more than keep it together. They enriched us beyond what I thought would be possible. Every service we attended showed us another layer of hope that I am not sure we would have seen otherwise. When Pastor Brandon started us off, we felt security, knowing that we would still have leadership and an analytical insight into the word. And we were treated to his wonderful sense of humor as well. Pastor Corey has a way of painting a picture such that you feel you were there with the disciples. And those emotions help make the message relevant and more easily transferable to our everyday lives. I absolutely loved hearing Alyssa Brooks Dowdy speak. She showed us that our own experiences matter, that we don't have to be perfect. And in sharing those experiences, we can make the daily practice of Christianity less intimidating to those who think it's all who think it's an all or nothing endeavor. Steve Reed was so engaging, funny and moving. He showed a respect for his fellow parishioners. That was such an example. We can learn from one another. And that is really what I think was one of the greatest lessons we got during your absence. Don't get me wrong, the sermons on the Beatitudes were not lost on me. But wrapped up in those sermons was just the reminder that we as a congregation can and should learn from one another. Just because the conductor is gone doesn't mean that the orchestra can't make beautiful music 
together. Isn't that great? I just want to say thank you and thank our staff for the amazing, amazing job they did uh, while while I was gone. It's great to be back. It really is. So at staff meeting, we were I was having everybody share about what happened in these uh, last 10 weeks. And we had some good laughs and some tears. And it was just a wonderful time. And I thought of as I was uh, talking to the staff about John's words to his fellow evangelists, his fellow pastors uh, in the book of third John. Now, he wrote several books, but three letters, first first John, second John, which is just a short chapter and third John and both second John and third John have the same sentiment that he shares with his fellow pastors. Here's what he said. I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Isn't that beautiful? It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. To come back, I've received many emails from you and messages on the phone uh, just telling me how that over the summer, uh, God has spoken to you in this way and has taken you to a new place spiritually through struggles. You've learned lessons that cause you to be a more fully devoted follower of Christ. All of these things were happening to you. And I can't tell you what it means for me to come back and say that no greater joy can a man have than this. Than to hear that his children, his spiritual children, are following the truth. Many of you are my spiritual children. I feel that way. And you are the children of the church. You have come to faith in Christ here. Your children are growing up here. You're teenagers. But, but I can't tell you how much this means to me to be able to say to you, no greater joy can a man have than this, than to hear that his children are following the truth. Thanks be to God for each and every one of you. So I want to tell you about our uh, sabbatical. If you want the full version, you have to talk to Sherry. She's the uh, verbal one in our family. Um, if you want slides, you have to talk to Sherry. She said, aren't you going to show all the pictures? I said, no. Um, uh, but she wants to show you all the pictures, and there's hundreds of them. And, um, but, but I do want to say this. We learned so much on our sabbatical. There were so many reflections and lessons that God revealed to us. And I, I just, uh, I'm just so thrilled. So I'm going to give you the short version. Uh, at the men's group on Friday, I gave them kind of a longer version, but I'll just give you the five-minute version right now. So we uh, left uh, the Tuesday after Memorial Day in our van, and um, uh, the first stop was Las Vegas, which is a great place for a gambling addict to stop, uh, you know, first, uh, first off. And uh, we met with uh, Ryan and Kristen Lunsford, and some of you remember that Ryan was one of our first worship pastors back in 2002 to 2004. And now he and his family are planting a church. It's called Advanced Church in <clears throat> excuse me, Las Vegas. And so we spent the evening with them and had a wonderful time. And in fact, it made me realize what an impact Hope has had, not just here, but throughout the, the country. I mean, Ryan is planting Advanced Church. Kent has planted uh, the bridge. Um, uh, David Hillis, our former associate, is down at Grace. And we have all of these representatives of hope all over uh, the, the country that's really kind of gratifying for all of us. So we left um, uh, Las Vegas the next day and drove uh, through Nevada, through Nevada, through Nevada, you know how that goes. Until we finally got to California, through Central California, got close to um, 
Sacramento and then made a beeline for the coast, which is what you do when you get close to Sacramento. You make a beeline for the coast. And we drove up northern California uh, the last couple hundred miles and into Oregon. Spent uh, a night at a bed and breakfast there. It was wonderful. And then the next day we arrived at our daughter's house in Portland. And uh, that was on a Monday. And that was the day before our family reunion on Tuesday. So I made a couple of trips to the airport. Uh, Mom and dad, uh, Sherry's parents, uh, flew from San Diego, rented a car. Nathan and his crew uh, got in there. I put them in my van and we all went to Tammy's house, loaded up our cars with food and kids, mostly kids, and then headed for the beach. Uh, our uh, family reunion was at Bella Beach, Oregon, which is by Lincoln City, and we had a week there uh, with our family. Let's see the fam. Okay. Um, you, most of you know mom and dad on the far left. That's dad, 83 years old mom. They're the ones that just sac- uh, uh, celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. Um, behind them is Tristan, 12 years old, uh, already that big. And then myself and Sherry. Uh, to Sherry's left is Jaden, 15 years old. Below him is McCann- McKenna, 12 years old, going on 20. Um, to her left is our daughter, Tammy, holding Elowen. And Elowen is the one like this. Uh, she's two. So that's all you need to know. Uh, we had a photographer take about 20 of these pictures. That's the best one of Elowen. The best, okay? And again, she's two. And uh, so then uh, that's Elowen. And then uh, next to her is Tina, our daughter-in-law, uh, our son Nathan. And down in front are TWC. They called themselves the TWC Club. Uh, Tyler, Wesley, and Caleb. Tyler's the alpha dog. That's why his name's first. Uh, he's the one on the left. That's Nathan and Tina's son, youngest. And the two little guys, Wesley behind and Caleb with the beautiful smile, uh, is uh, in front. And they're seven and five. So the seven, seven and five year olds with the TWC club. And here's the neat thing. They had never met before. Our kids, our family has not been together since our daughter's wedding in 2004. And so this is the first time we were all together and Sherry and I uh, stood down on the beach that first day watching our grandkids play together and our son and daughter on a long walk talking and our son-in-law and daughter-in-law, connect, everybody connecting and having a great time. And Sherry started crying and so did I. It was, uh, those of you who know our journey, our family's been kind of uh, really at conflict for quite a few years and to know the miracle that God has done in our family uh, was remarkable. And uh, we just stood there and wept and thanked God. So uh, that was beautiful. After that, we spent a couple more days in Portland. Uh, then we headed up, picked up our traveling buddies, uh, Larry and uh, 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 Larry and Patty Wilson, and uh, went on a cruise to Alaska. We left from Vancouver, Columbia, uh, uh, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. Uh, cruise to Alaska, which was wonderful. Uh, Mike Carlisle set me up with a fishing trip. And I'll tell you about the one that got away someday. Uh, every time I tell the story, Mike, it's a little bit bigger. But uh, it was a big fish. And uh, then um, after the cruise, we took our, our, our relatives back to Washington to fly home. And then we went back up to, um, uh, to uh, Canada uh, in the Vancouver area. And that's where I went to seminary for a week. Uh, Regent Seminary, which is where Pastor Corey went to seminary. And I studied there under J.I. Packer, 87 years old, still sharp as a tack, one of the foremost New Testament theologians in the world. He's a British guy, but we still love him. And uh, so he was there and he taught on 2 Corinthians 
for an entire week. Every day from 8 till noon, he just lectured. No pictures, no slides, no iPads, no i anything. Just an old guy talking about the Bible, and it was amazing. And then Sherry joined me at noon for the chapel. Then we go on an adventure to Whistler or different places. It was wonderful. And then after, um, after that, we went to Bowen Island, which is a small island off of Vancouver, uh, where there was a retreat center that we went to for four days. And that's where I dug in and studied Second Corinthians and started putting them in the form of a sermon series, which I will roll out the middle of September. So that's going to be exciting for me. I hope for you as well. Uh, after that retreat center, uh, went back, uh, left Canada, went to Portland, and we arrived at our daughter's house on July 11th. And that was the birthday of two of our grandkids, Caleb 5 and Ella 2 have the same birthday, July 11th. So we spent uh, a birthday with them, which was wonderful. And then after that, we went to Hoodsport, um, Washington in the Olympic Mountains. That's where uh, Jim and Carol Wolf, our winter visitors, have a, a cabin, and we stayed there for a week. Uh, after that, we went back to Portland, saw the kids again. After that, we headed for Utah. Instead of going back through Oregon, California, we went through Idaho, Utah, and we got down to a house that my cousin owns on the uh, east entrance of Zion National Park. Beautiful house, and we stayed there for a week and had a wonderful time of kind of you know, kind of motoring down a bit. And then uh, we left uh, a week ago Friday to Payson. Uh, we got to Payson. We stayed at Bob Brown's house for four days, uh, where we celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary on August 1st. That was awesome. And then back to here uh, last Friday, a week ago Friday, and uh, I went to the bridge last Sunday and saw how our, our church plan is doing, and they're doing great. They send their greetings and their love to you. And uh, then back in the office on Tuesday. So that was it. And it was amazing. And it was fabulous. And I want to share some reflections with you, some things that we learned. And the first thing is about the very word sabbatical. Now, sabbatical, you know the word. Uh, it comes from the Bible. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 28. God said, I work for six days creating this universe. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath... I rested. So there is a word throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, but a word that constantly pops up, and it's about this. It's about rest and having a Sabbath rest. Okay, now, you think of that as, well, the Sabbath. Okay, we go to church on Sunday, right? That's our Sabbath. Now, you say, well, how come we don't worship on Saturday? Well, the early church met on Sunday because they celebrated the resurrection of Christ, which took place on Sunday. So they shifted from the, the Hebrew Sabbath to making their Sabbath Sunday. So that's why we have our Sabbath on Sunday. So um, here we have this wonderful concept of rest. Now, there's two words in the Old Testament that have to do with rest and Sabbath. The first word is one you'd rec- recognize, Shabbat. Okay, that's where we get the word Sabbath. And it means to come to the end of an activity... To lay down the plow, put down the pencil, turn off the computer. Okay, that's one word, Shabbat. That's what it means. The other word is swint, W-S-I-N-T. And it means finding tranquility, peace, and inner space. Finding tranquility, peace, and inner space. So part of the Shabbat, part of the uh, Sabbath that we are supposed to experience as believers is to stop our normal, ordinary work. That's what we do on Sundays. I hope most of you don't have to go to work on Sundays. Only 
I do, and Brandon, and the others, right? But most of you, this is your Sabbath. This is a day to reflect on God. This is a day to experience some inner peace. And I know that brunch and football gets in the way, but we still have a different rhythm on Sunday, hopefully, and that's our Sabbath. So my Sabbath, the ten weeks, was about rest, restoration, and reflection. And that's what I did during those ten weeks. And we need to experience Daily, weekly, monthly, yearly Sabbaths. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, Kelly Hubby gave Sherry a book that turned her world upside down. And if Sherry's world gets turned upside down, so does mine. It was called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. And we have studied Peter Scazzaro, another book, uh, Emotionally Healthy Church, in our staff meetings. And this book talks about the importance of having Sabbaths. Not just Sunday. First of all, making Sunday really a Sabbath. And that doesn't mean that you can't do things you enjoy. Do things different than you do the rest of the week. That's really kind of what a Sabbath is about. Have a, have a change up, a change of pace. Do something different. Go for a drive. Certainly go to church. Reflect on God. Reflect on His goodnesses. So you don't have to be weird and Amish about it. Just have it different than a normal day. But beyond our weekly Sabbaths, we need daily Sabbaths. And so Scazzaro talks about the idea of having several Sabbaths throughout the day. And so Sherry and I have begun the practice, and we've been doing this for over a month now. To our, we always have our morning devotion. She has it at home, and I have it here at the office. And then um, throughout the day, we take a Sabbath. And what I do is I take seven minutes. I know it doesn't sound like much, but that's as much spirituality as I can crank out in a mid-afternoon. Seven minutes, I just walk around the church and I pray and I focus and I center on God. The Methodists used to call it hunkering down. In other words, you just kind of just focus on God and nothing else. And, and so I do that. And then at night, she and I, either at dinner or at bedtime, we do another, we do a daily office. We do a prayer, scripture reading, silence. And it's really cool. So we are experiencing Sabbath throughout the day. What I found already is that I have more energy I have more life in me. Now, you would think that because I'm at church most of the day, every day, that I'm really spiritual. Well, that's that's hard work. So I need God. I don't need just work. I don't need just ministry. I need God. So I discover that and find that each day and every day. And I want to encourage you to do the same. This is what God said in Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. We need those times, not just our devotion, but we need times to center on God, to read scripture, to pray, to be silent, to be in solitude, all of those things. And you can find those things in your everyday life. That's what we learned from that book by Peter Scazzaro. So I want, and one of the things he talked about was having time to stop. To rest. Some people do good by laying down a power nap in the afternoon. I can't do that because I don't have any power when I wake up from a nap. So, uh, so some people do, but find a way to stop, to rest, to delight in the Lord and to contemplate. And I love the words of G.K. Chesterton. He says, when you contemplate, he said, I don't want you to think about God. I want you to think magnificently about God. Isn't that beautiful? Think magnificently about God. Think of his creation. Think of his grace and his, his salvation that he's provided. All of that. So with all that in mind, I want to invite you to find Sabbath rest. Not just on Sunday, 
but every day of your week. Every month, every month, Sherry and I are committed to going away for a day alone with God. And of course, we uh, every seven years, hopefully we'll have a sabbatical, you know, but you need to find ways to invite God and that inner peace and that inner solitude, that inner space to invite God into your everyday life. I can see guys walking around Intel, guys from our church and gals from our church walking around Intel, just walking around. And yet they're experiencing an inner peace with God because they are taking a Sabbath. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to join me in a prayer. If you don't have enough faith to pray this prayer, pray it any, any way. You can borrow faith from your friends that are sitting around you. If you don't really know God yet or have experienced his life, it's okay. Go ahead and pray this prayer if you would and uh, do it on faith. And, and then maybe the action of doing that will lead to a reaction of experiencing God or whatever. But I just want to invite all of you to share with me in this prayer. And to do this properly, we need to stand. Because this is inviting God into your life every single day, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. Pray this prayer. So let's pray it together out loud. Lord, help me to grab hold of you as my rope in the blizzard today. I need you. The idea of stopping to be with you one, two or three times a day seems overwhelming. But I know I need you. Show me the way. Teach me to be prayerfully attentive to you. This idea of Sabbath, Lord, will require a lot of change in the way I am living my life. Lead me, Lord, in how to take the next step with this. Help me trust you with all that will remain unfinished. To not try to run your world for you. Set me free to begin reorienting my life around you and you alone. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Be seated, please. Some of you need to reread that phrase that said, Help me not to run the world my own way. Okay, some of you, kind of, including me, kind of try to do that. So, that is the reflection, the first reflection I'd like to share with you today is uh, about a Sabbath. The second reflection is this. You already know this, common sense. But it really came home strongly to me. And that's this family matters. Now, what I'm talking about is your family of origin. Parents, grandparents, children, grandchildren, cousins, nephews, family matters. Now, some of you have been with Sherry and I on this journey where we've been kind of at odds and estranged from our kids. And because of that, our grandkids as well. That's healed and God has done a healing work. But he's done that healing work uh, through a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grace. And I just want to say right up front that uh, there are many of you who are also experiencing family tension and brokenness and heartache and hurt. And the most important thing you can do is offer forgiveness. You can't make it better, but you can offer forgiveness from your standpoint, from your end. You can offer forgiveness and offer grace and then see what God will do. Now, our family dynamics uh, got goofed up a long time ago. And again, I'm not going to go into this, but most of you know, back in 1989, uh, our 10-year-old son Tyler was killed. And that, I'll just be very frank and very honest, that really screwed our family up. And as a result of that, our kids at the time were 16 and 12, Nathan and Tammy. And, and, um, and so things have just been hard and difficult. And only recently have we kind of regained that joy in the Lord and that joy in each other. And our um, family reunion was that answer to prayer, that that miracle. And it reminded me um, of a wonderful passage that many of you are familiar with in Deuteronomy 6. 
Um, this, this is what uh, the Lord said to the children of Israel. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. And you must love the Lord with your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Now that phrase right there, it's called the sacred Shema or Shema. And that's the, that's the part that uh, the Orthodox Jews, you still see them today, they put a little leather box and they strap it to their forehead, strap it to their forearm. That's, a, you know, called a phylactery. You've heard of some of these phrases. But it, that sacred Shema was what was on a little scroll inside of that. So he said, God says, I want you to remember this. This matters. Okay. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Okay. So that's the sacred Shema. Look, listen to the next sentence. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and where you are when you are on the road and when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Then uh, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. And here's what uh, Moses is saying uh, through the Spirit of God to the Israelites. He said this, listen, you've only got one crack at this thing we call the family. you only got one shot. Now, of course, we want to teach our children all the things that we think are important, right? Be good students, please. Be good citizens, uh, get, learn how to play soccer, play the trumpet well, you know, do all those things. Say yes, ma'am and yes, sir. Uh, be applied in society. Learn how to drive and not kill yourself. We, 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 we want to teach all of our kids these things, and those, those are really important. But listen to what Deuteronomy 6 says. Nothing, nothing matters more than you telling your kids about the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing matters more than when they go to sleep, when they rise up in the morning, than to speak about God and His love and His grace in your home over and over and over again. Now, I'm not being weird and I'm not being I'm challenging you in any way except this. We need to get this right. You kids can grow up and make a billion dollars and not go to heaven. We need to get this thing right. And we need to do whatever we can to teach our children the love of Jesus. So let me tell you why that matters to me so much. So we've had all this struggle with our family. Now we're together at a family reunion. Pastor Barb tells us months ago in staff meeting, she says, why don't parents more often tell their kids, their own kids, about their faith story? And all of us in the staff meeting kind of looked around and said, that's a good question. We don't even think about it that often, you know. I, I can't remember... Anytime when I sat down with my children when they were small and said, you kids want to know how I came to faith in Christ when I was 16 years old at Youth for Christ? And, and, and so I said, she said, why don't we do that? So that was a spur in me and then Sherry. And so we did that at the family reunion. We asked all the, all the family gathered for Sunday church. We called it house church. And um, so McKenna and Sherry were in charge of the activities. So they had all the sign up sheets, you know, sign up. Who wants to sing, lead singing? Who wants to preach? That's Grandpa. She wrote in there. Uh, who wants to read Scripture? I said, who wants to take the offering? Of course, you know, she, she's, from, she's been in church all of her life, right? So you have to take offering. So, so all these things. But what we did was we just went around the circle. And we said every one of us were to share our faith story. Oh, some were embarrassed. Of course they were. So what? Some didn't really want to. That's all right. We encouraged them to anyway. So everybody shared their faith story. So we started with Dad, 83 years old. And he shared how he came to 
Uh, his mom didn't go to church, but took he and his brothers to Sunday school when they were just little boys, dropped them off at the Disciples of Christ Church in Macomb, Illinois, and a Sunday school teacher led them to Jesus. I don't know that I'd ever heard that story. Now, Art Wilson, 83 years old, is telling that to four generations. And then mom shares her story. And then, as it would have it, because we're going from oldest to youngest, I'm next, and I share my story, and Sherry. And then our son-in-law, who's next oldest, and then our daughter, and then our daughter-in-law, then our son, then all the kids. And when the kids started sharing their story, uh, Jaden and McKenna and Tristan and Wesley, and, and each one of them said, well, um, it, was, it was my mommy that led me to Jesus. My uh, granddaughter, McKenna, said, uh, uh, it was my daddy. And the back of, when I was coming home from school, this is after my son went through a divorce, and my son was trying to just help his little daughter through this. She said, it was riding on a long drive with my daddy when he led me to Jesus. And each one of the kids had a story similar to that. And I thought, Lord, this is it. This is heaven. You know, my kids may grow up, my grandkids may grow up to be trash collectors or homeless or something else. And I wouldn't want that for them. But I'll tell you what, every one of them, right down to the little five-year-old Caleb. And Eloan, by the way, she's two years, she really needs Jesus, so pray for her. Uh, <laughs> that'll happen soon enough, I trust. But, but all these kids, and, and I'll tell you what, when you hear your kids talk about their faith and their love for Jesus, our older grandkids want to have discussions about theology and the Bible and, and no greater joy can a man have than this than to hear that his children, spiritual children, and his biological children follow the truth. Family matters. It matters. If it's too late for you, if your kids are grown and you have no influence over them anyway, influence your grandkids. Pray for them. Tell them about your testimony. Tell them how you came to Christ. Let them know that this is the most important thing in life. Tell them the truth. So we all know the Ten Commandments, right? So part of the Ten Commandments are that really ugly verse in chapter 20 of Exodus and verse 5 that we all cringe at when we hear. And it says that the sins of the fathers and the grandfathers are visited upon their children to the second and third generations. We hate that verse because we know it's true. We've seen it. Many of us have seen it in our own families where sinful attributes and broken hearts and bad marriages just kind of pass on from one generation to the next. But here's the truth of the Word of God. The next verse after that we, that we don't say enough says this. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations, not just two or three, for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. If you had a father that abused you, if you had parents that weren't believers and, and did stupid stuff, if you had family of origin that was broken and messy and everything, do this. Be, be, be number one, generation number one that loves and serves the Lord. You do that. That's your main, most important job that any one of us has, is to do whatever we can to teach the love of Jesus to our children, our grandchildren, someday our great-grandchildren. Family matters. Now, the next uh, reflection is going to sound kind of weird because the next one is this. Family matters. 
Now you say, well, Pat, you're, you're confused. You've been not preaching for, for a long time. No, family matters. The same thing, only I want you to hear a different verse. Listen to Matthew chapter 12. Your family of origin matters, but the family of God matters as well. Listen to this. Matthew 12, 46. And Jesus, speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside. So Mary and his brothers, James uh, and the others, he's the only one that's named, uh, were uh, standing outside, asking to speak to him. So mom and brothers and sisters wanted to speak to Jesus. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Some of you don't even have parents anymore like me. My parents are both in heaven. Some of you have not had a good relationship with your parents or maybe your kids for many, many years. Some of you, when you hear me talk about blood relations and family reunions, makes you want to puke. When we used to hear about family reunions, that's the way Sherry and I used to feel. Because it just wasn't happening for us. But hear the word of God. We are your family. We love you. We are your mothers and your fathers and your brothers and your sisters and your children. The church of Jesus Christ is to be together a lot longer than your blood relatives. The church of Jesus Christ is going to be together for all eternity. When you look around the church and you look at each other, these are the people you're going to be hanging out with for the next 10,000 years. Family matters. One of the things I studied in, um, at, Riven, or at, um, at uh, the seminary there was uh, under J.I. Packer was 2 Corinthians. And one of the great teachings of 2 Corinthians, we're going to do this whole series, and the title of the series is going to be Be Encouraged. That's 2 Corinthians. Be encouraged, right? And part of that is Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth, if you remember some of your history, they were a messed up bunch. They were involved in all kinds of sexual immorality. They didn't know who was in charge. It was just a big mess. And Paul had written a very scathing, difficult letter that we don't have any record of. Uh, he talks about it, but that we have no record of it. But it was very pointed, very scathing about you need to get your act together. You need to repent of this sin. You need to throw this guy out of the church. You need to do all of these things. And then he sent Second Corinthians after that. And at that point, he said, you know what? I had to be hard on you, but I love you. And one of the things that just totally blew me away was Paul, because you don't think of Paul as a loving, touchy-feely kind of guy. He's, he wasn't a hugger, you know. He was not a hugger. And, but, but Paul was this guy that was always speaking the truth and maybe in your face a little bit and kind of yelling. He was a bullhorn guy, but he was pretty close to it. And, 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 and so all the, but here we find this side of Paul that he has this deep love for his church family in Corinth. Now, he had a lot of church families, right? His spiritual children. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 6. Oh, dear Corinthian friends. Remember, he'd been critical of them and sent that letter. They got really mad at him and said, well, we don't want to mess with Paul anymore. We have spoken honestly with you and our hearts are open to you. Paul says, our hearts are open to you. There's no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from me. I am asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. 
And when I read that, I thought of you. Now, I've been the pastor of four different churches in my ministry. This one's been the longest, uh, 13 years. And when I read that, I thought of that, and I thought of some of the hard conversations I've had with some of you. And some of the, um, thus saith the Lord's that I've laid out in front of you, and you haven't liked it. And I thought about how that you're still here, and you're still hanging in there, and you're still trying to figure out what is it for you to take one step closer to Jesus. And my heart was so filled with love for you, I can't even begin to express it. No greater joy can a man have than this, than to hear that his children are following the truth. I love that about you, that you're not perfect, and I'm certainly not perfect, but we are on this imperfect path towards redemption and salvation and sanctification and eventually eternity. Family matters. You matter. You matter to each other. I mean, we've talked about this. We did a whole series on what is a Christian. And we talked about how the New Testament is clear that the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. And usually it's used as a derogatory term. You Christians. But the word that was used over and over and over again was what? Disciple. Disciple. Now, that's a whole different level of commitment. Uh, a Christian can be anything you want it to be. A Christian can be a Republican, a Democrat, somebody that believes in God, somebody that loves Buddha, somebody that's a Mormon, somebody that's a Jehovah's Witness. A Christian can be anything you want it to be because it's not really defined in Scripture. But a disciple is defined in Scripture. A disciple is someone who is devoted to Jesus. A disciple, the word met- methatos, it means learner, pupil, apprentice, protege, follower. A disciple says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. How do you want me to live my life? And before Jesus can even get a word out of his mouth, you say, yes, I'll do it. Jesus, how should I deal with this family situation that's just really ugly? And before I can, before Jesus can even give me counsel from Scripture and tell me how I should, I'm saying, yes, I'll do it. I'll try it. I'll do whatever you say. Jesus, where are you going? And before Jesus even says where he's going, you say, well, I'm going with you. Jesus, how do you deal with a, a husband that doesn't love you? And before Jesus can even say anything, you say, well, yes, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make my husband love me and love you. Jesus, what about money? What about marriage? What about relationships? What about jobs? How should I do all of this? How are you doing all of that? How did you maneuver all that? How did you navigate all of that? And before Jesus can even tell me the answer to the question, I say yes. In 2 Corinthians, here's what Paul said about Jesus and his Father in heaven. Every time the Father even begins to speak something to the Son, the Son says, yes, and amen, I'll do it. And every time you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple Every time you have any questions about how you want to live your life, you don't talk to your brother-in-law, you don't talk to somebody that has a lot of money, you don't talk to somebody that has a good job, you go to the Scripture, you say, Jesus, how do you want me to live? And before he even gives you an answer, you say, yes, I'm on board. So we're in Utah, and I am have been uh, not struggling, but I've been contending with the Spirit for weeks, asking the Lord, Lord, I need a word from you. What do you want me to... How do you want me to pastor and how do you want me to love and serve Hope Covenant Church in these next this next season of my life as a pastor? And what do you want? And as clearly as a bell and this happened, Sherry and I were having a day alone with God in Utah 
And the Lord was speaking to her the same thing, the same time uh, he was speaking to me. And he said just two words, and it was this. Make disciples. Don't make Christians. You know, they, they are not very good anyway. Make disciples. Make those people, and that's what the Great Commission is all about, right? Matthew 28. Make disciples. You build into yourself and to those people around you this idea that no matter what is required of me, no matter what God asks of me, the answer is yes and amen. The answer is yes. I will do it. But I, you, I haven't even told you what I want you to do yet. God would say, but the answer is still yes, Father, no matter what it is. The answer is yes. So Jesus is standing before his disciples, plus a lot of other followers by this time. Standing on top of the Mount of Olives and... He looks kind of weird and kind of funny because he's, first of all, resurrected and he has that kind of aura anyway. And now he really has something going on. They don't quite know what it is. And then this is what Jesus says to his followers before he disappears. And Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey Everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And then he's gone. He disappears. And they're looking around at each other. Huh? What? What are we supposed to do? And the thing that Jesus left with his followers and the thing that he leaves with us and the things that he leaves with Hope Covenant Church is simply this. Find a way to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Find a way what it means not to be a Christian, but to be a disciple. And I want you to live that way for the rest of your life. Every time you have uh, an issue in your life, every time you have a conundrum, every time you have a crisis, every time you have a circumstance, you go to God first, not your brother-in-law or not somebody that makes a lot of money. You go to God first and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And before God even answers you, you say, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple. And my answer is yes. And amen. My answer is yes. You can hear a lot about making disciples in the coming weeks and months as Brandon and I and the rest of the staff work through this, what it looks like, what we're going to be doing. But God has put this deep conviction on my soul. And, and Sherry's and uh, Brandon and Kelly, all four of us have been talking about this, this deep conviction that God wants us to be a church that does exactly what Jesus said we're supposed to do. And that's make disciples. You know, we're pretty good at making converts. Okay, I'm proud of our church for that. We've been very good over the years of inviting people into a relationship with Jesus Christ and give, turning their lives over to him and experiencing new life in Christ. And that's awesome. And we need that and we want that. That's only the beginning. What does it mean to make disciples? You're coming on an adventure. Uh, you're part of Hope Covenant Church. And part of that adventure is going to be trying to identify and figure out what this means to under any circumstances, no matter what happens in our lives, good, bad or ugly, we simply stand up before the Lord Jesus and we say, before you even tell me what you want me to do, Lord Jesus, the answer is yes. Would you bow your heads with me, please?